Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today, we are looking at John chapter 20, and this teaching is entitled, There's Something About Mary Magdalene. I must admit, I'm really excited about this episode because I really enjoyed giving this sermon last Saturday. Let's read John chapter 20, verse 1 to 18 together. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, Why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is told by John in his gospel. Many Christians tell the world that this event is the most important event in all of scripture. The primacy of this event comes from Paul the Apostle when he writes a letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 15 when he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. For Paul, all of the singing, all of the church gatherings, all of the small groups, all of the Bible study is all a waste of time unless Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Christians need the resurrection 
to be a historical event. And the historical accuracy as reported by John is critical to validating the historicity of this event. This is a reason many Christians give for the fact that there are four Gospels included in the Bible. Christians will tell others that these four Gospels verify one another. They are four different witnesses who corroborate each other's stories in an effort to prove that these events occurred and specifically that the resurrection occurred. So we can go to John's Gospel and read about how Jesus Christ rose from the dead and then verify that testimony by the other three Gospels and their writers. So when John tells us that Mary Magdalene and only Mary Magdalene went to the tomb on Sunday morning, we turn to Matthew's Gospel and assume to read the same thing, but we are stunned when Matthew tells us that there were two women and not one who went to the tomb on Sunday morning. Now, this seems to undermine the historical accuracy of these Gospels. But with that in mind, we turn to Mark's Gospel, assuming he will break the tie between John's 1 versus Matthew's 2. And Mark tells us that there were three women who went to the tomb on Sunday morning. We have a three-way tie between three Gospels. So we flip over to Luke's Gospel, hoping that he will verify at least one of these accounts and Luke tells us that there are more than four women who went to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday morning. This is a bit of a problem because these four gospel writers cannot keep their story straight as to who discovered the empty tomb on Sunday morning. Now, there are some who have written off these inconsistencies to the fact that these four men had very low views of women. And they say to themselves, okay, while they may not have paid attention to the women who were there, they definitely paid attention to the angels who were there. So when John tells us that there were two angels inside the tomb, we assume that we can turn to Matthew's gospel and read about two angels inside the tomb. But Matthew's gospel doesn't verify John's account. Instead, Matthew tells us that there was only one angel, and this angel was not in the tomb but was sitting on top of the stone that was rolled away. Mark disagrees with John, but agrees with Matthew that there was only one angel. But then he agrees with John and disagrees with Matthew by telling us that there was one angel inside the tomb. And Luke has a completely different story than everyone else because Luke tells us that there were two angels standing there, but they were on the ground outside the tomb. And while Christians will often tell other people that the four gospel accounts verify or validate or corroborate one another, what Christians rarely talk about but must accept as truth is that there are two major contradictions between the four gospel records of the resurrection. The first contradiction is the angels, both the number and where they were standing. And the second contradiction is the women, who was there, and how many were there. There are two major contradictions about the most important event in all of the New Testament. Do these contradictions call into question the historical accuracy 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe there's something else going on here. And to talk about that, we have to look closely at John's account of the resurrection. So let's go back to verse 1 when John writes these words. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Now it's here that we must pause and ask, who is Mary Magdalene? Now Mary Magdalene is rather popular within church history. She is mentioned by all four Gospels, and the church has often told the world about her redemptive story. She lived a life of sin and of the flesh and was a prostitute until she met Jesus, then gave up her life of sin and began to follow him. And if Mary Magdalene heard those words coming out of my mouth today, I believe that she would respond by saying, excuse me? And I would say to her, well, you know, you were a prostitute before you met Jesus, and then you met Jesus and you gave up your life of sin. And she would respond to that clarification by saying, what? Where did you get that idea? And I would say to her, well, we read about it in the Bible, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's Gospels. And so from there, Mary Magdalene would turn to the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and say, which one of you idiots told the world that I was a prostitute? Matthew would say to her, well, it wasn't me. Mark would say, I didn't write that. Luke would say, I said no such thing. And John would say, that's not in my book. Mary Magdalene then would turn around to me and say, if it's not in those books, then where did you get that idea from? And I would say to her, for the majority of my life, I would say to Mary Magdalene, well, remember that story? Remember in John's gospel where Mary Magdalene was caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus and people were about to kill her because that's what the law of Moses required them to do. But Jesus intervened and saved her life and said, go and live your life of sin no more. Isn't that in your gospel, John? And John would stare at me blankly and say, why did you think that was Mary Magdalene? In my gospel, it's an unnamed woman because I had this sense that if we named her, she would be held up as an example for how terrible women are. Why would you just randomly assign that story to Mary Magdalene? And then we would say, well, what about that story where Mary Magdalene was a prostitute and Jesus liberated her from that life of sin and she was so grateful that she took that alabaster jar of perfume that she had bought with a year's worth of wages of sleeping with men for a year and poured that out on the feet of Jesus and anointed him. Wasn't that you, Mary Magdalene? To which she would stare at us blankly and said, where do you get these ideas from? And the truthful answer is that if you have heard these stories or have heard that these stories are assigned to Mary Magdalene, it all comes from a sermon that was given 600 years after the life of Mary Magdalene. In 591 CE, Pope Gregory I gave a sermon in which he was trying to explain to people who Mary Magdalene was and what her life actually meant. 
In this sermon, he said these words, she whom Luke calls the sinful woman. Now, we need to stop here in Pope Gregory's sermon to tell you what he is referencing. He is talking about in Luke chapter 7 about an unnamed woman who washes the feet of Jesus. Now, according to Luke's gospel, this woman is a sinner and she has left her life of sin behind and is so grateful that she gives an alabaster jar's worth of perfume onto Jesus' feet and anoints him. But in Luke's gospel, she is unnamed. Now, what's different between Luke's gospel and John's gospel is that John tells us this woman's name, which is Mary from a town called Bethany, which is not the town of Magdala from which Mary Magdalene comes. <laughs> not only that, but in John's gospel, Mary of Bethany anoints the feet of Jesus because she is grateful that Jesus has resurrected her brother Lazarus from the dead. So here, the Pope lumps these stories together by saying, she whom Luke calls the sinful woman, whom John calls Mary of Bethany, we believe to be the Mary from whom seven devils were ejected, according to Mark. And according to Mark's gospel, this woman who had seven demons cast out of her was Mary Magdalene. So he ties all three of those stories together, and then he goes on to say this. And what did these seven devils signify, if not all of the vices? In other words, the seven deadly sins. He then wraps up his sermon by saying, It is clear, brothers, that the woman previously used the unguent to perfume her flesh in forbidden acts. And 600 years after she lived, if Mary Magdalene could hear that sermon, I believe that she would react by saying something like this. This is horrible. She then may ask, does the church even care who I am? Now, this was all written about in an article for Time magazine in which the author, David Van Bierna, talked about Gregory's motivation to lump all of these stories together. David Van Bierna writes these words. What prompted Gregory to do this? One theory suggests an attempt to reduce the number of Marys. In other words, he couldn't quite keep straight which Mary was which, and so he decided to make them all the same Mary. And over the past 1,400 years since Pope Gregory's sermon, the church has told the world that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute and has told them about how Jesus met her and freed her from her life of prostitution. But that idea is nowhere in the Bible. And so for that reason, I think it's important for us to discuss the Marys who are in the four Gospels. Because there are four of them, and it's important for us to keep all of these Marys straight and to talk about who each of these women were, because otherwise we start telling the world about Mary Magdalene and the life of prostitution that she never participated in according to Scripture. So let's begin by talking about the most famous Mary in the New Testament, which is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, we meet Mary in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2 during the birth story of Jesus. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke then record a story about her where she is deeply uncomfortable with the teachings of Jesus, and she asks him to come home, and Jesus responds by saying, who is my mother? Another story that is recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, is a story about how Jesus is speaking about how he is the Son of God, and people respond by asking, isn't this guy's mother Mary? She is also mentioned in John chapter 2 when Jesus and his mother are at a wedding and they are starting to run out of wine. Mary is the mother who wants to keep the party going, so she instigates Jesus' first miracle, according to John, and asks him to turn water into wine. Jesus does it. Lastly, John is the only gospel that records that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was present at the crucifixion of her son in John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. So those are all of the references to Mary, the mother of Jesus. This brings us to the second Mary that is mentioned in all four Gospels, which is Mary, the mother of James. Now, there were two disciples of Jesus who were named James, and the way the church keeps them straight is a rather horrible way to keep two people straight. There is James the Great and James the Lesser. (laughs) James the Lesser is much less known about in Christian history, and he's considered to do less greater things than James the Great. Mary, the mother of James, is the mother of James the Lesser. And what's interesting is Mary, the mother of James, is mentioned more within Scripture than her son, James the Lesser. And the best way to think about Mary, the mother of James is you know how you have those close friends whose parents kind of adopt you as their own? That's who Mary, the mother of James, was. Because what she is recorded as doing in all four Gospels is she is present during the most harrowing and dark time of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and John record that she was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. In addition to being present at the crucifixion, Matthew and Mark record that she was a witness to the Roman government bearing the body of Jesus. And then lastly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that she was present, that she was there on Sunday morning and was one of the women who discovered the empty tomb of Jesus and was a primary witness to the resurrection of Christ. This brings us to the third Mary from the Gospels, which is Mary of Bethany, who is also the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, most Christians know the story of this Mary from Bethany, but what most Christians don't know is that she is not mentioned at all in Matthew or Mark's Gospel. Luke only records one story about Mary, the sister of Martha, and it takes place in chapter 10 when Martha is in the kitchen cooking And Mary is sitting at the rabbi's feet, at Jesus' feet, and learning from the teachings of Jesus. John tells us more about Mary, the sister of Martha, than any of the other Gospels. In chapter 11, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is sick. Jesus doesn't get to Bethany in time, and Lazarus dies. A few days after his death, Jesus shows up. Martha speaks to him very calmly, very rationally, and Mary sees Jesus and explodes into tears. 
What's interesting about Jesus is he meets both women in the unique ways they grieve where they are, and he grieves alongside them. Jesus then raises Lazarus from the dead. It's a miracle of epic proportions. This leads Mary to be so overwhelmed with gratitude that in chapter 12, she takes an expensive bottle of perfume and anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, a similar story is captured in the other three Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but all three of those Gospel writers did not identify the name or the person other than saying it was a woman who anointed the feet of Jesus. And as we mentioned earlier, Luke is the only one who tells the story of the woman anointing Jesus' feet by saying that she was a sinful woman and anointed Jesus' feet because she was grateful to be liberated from sin. But there is no mention of her name in Luke's gospel. This brings us to the last Mary who is mentioned in all of the gospels, and that is none other than Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene is mentioned in chapter 8, verse 2 of Luke's gospel and in chapter 16, verse 9 of Mark's gospel. And I'd like to read each of those passages. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 reads, Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now it's here that we have to pause and remind ourselves that a lot of stuff has changed in the last 2,000 years, particularly in the way that we view, understand, and diagnose medical illnesses. 2,000 years ago, there was no scientific method, and medicine was practiced in a very different way. For that reason, anytime someone had a disease or an illness that they could not explain, they would describe that illness as being possessed by a demon. Now, this may seem archaic in our modern worldview with scientific advancement, and I would say, of course it is. But this was written 2,000 years ago, and this was how people understood suffering and illness. So when someone was really sick, they would say, this person has been possessed by a demon. When someone was really, really sick, they would say, this person has been possessed by two demons. And if someone was really, really, really sick, they would say that this person's been possessed by three demons. All the way they went, this went down to seven demons. So when Luke tells us that Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out, what he's telling us is that Mary, at one point in her life, was extremely sick. And while the Pope in 591 CE wants to tell us that this signifies that she embodied all seven deadly sins, I believe that Luke is trying to tell us that this woman came back almost from the dead. It was like a miracle cure. So much so that in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 9, Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene was actually cured by Jesus. His exact words are, Now after he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And so Luke 8 and Mark 16 tell us that at one point, Mary was so sick that people considered her being possessed by seven 
demons. The rest of the references to Mary Magdalene all revolve around the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Specifically, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us that Mary Magdalene was present at the crucifixion of Jesus. In addition to that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that she was an eyewitness to the burial of Jesus' body. And then lastly, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record her as being present on Sunday morning and an eyewitness to the tomb being empty. And when you consider the fact that we have four different Gospels, and as they record this story of Christ's resurrection, and there are two major contradictions at the heart of this story, when you look closely at what happens, it tells us something that we must pay attention to. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John cannot agree on the number of women who went to the tomb. John said one, Matthew said two, Mark said three, and Luke said more than four. And when you look closely at who they record as being there, I think something really important rises to the surface. John tells us that Mary Magdalene went on Sunday morning by herself. Matthew records that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, went to the tomb on Sunday morning. Mark records that Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome were the three primary witnesses. And Luke tells us it was Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, and the other women. And while these four authors offer contradicting stories about who was there on Sunday morning, the one thing they can agree on is that Mary Magdalene was definitely there. She is the only one who shows up in all four Gospels. And while these guys have a hard time agreeing on what went down on Easter Sunday morning, the thing they can agree on is that Mary Magdalene was there. She saw the empty tomb. The angel spoke to her. And then she went into the world and began to tell the world that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now, what's shocking about all of this is the fact that when you search on the vast resource that is the internet for pictures of Mary Magdalene preaching and telling the world that he is risen, it is nearly impossible to find artwork of her preaching the good news. Instead, she is often depicted as a prostitute. She is hypersexualized. She is often depicted as being topless because the church went with Pope Gregory's understanding of Mary Magdalene rather than the four Gospels' understanding of who Mary Magdalene was. Now, I personally spend a lot of time searching for art for my sermons. I love looking at how people have portrayed biblical characters over the years and specifically looking for diversity because the more we look at this through a diverse lens, the more it becomes human and begins to hum with life. I will tell you that I could only find one painting of Mary Magdalene preaching, and it looked like she was fresh off the boat from Ireland. <laughs> she was about as white as you could possibly make her. So I reached out to Crystal Chavez, uh, one of our artists here at Paradox, and I asked her to draw Mary Magdalene preaching. And the image she came up with I've made as the art for this episode. 
And my hope is that if you can take one thing away from this podcast is that it's this image of Mary Magdalene preaching and telling the world that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's who she is according to scripture. That's who she is despite all of the contradictions these gospel writers have when recording the resurrection of Jesus. But there's something else deeper here when you pay attention to those two contradictions between the four gospel writers. Let's return to the first verse of John's account of the resurrection. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Just one woman was at the resurrection site, according to John, on Sunday morning. Now, it's here that if we could ask John, John, why didn't you record that there were more women there? Everyone else except for you agrees that there were multiple women at the tomb on Sunday morning. I believe that John would respond by saying, because I'm trying to tell you something. Just trust me. Keep reading. We would then keep reading verses 2 through 10 about how Mary Magdalene ran back. She got Peter and John. They ran back to the tomb. Peter and John verified it was empty. They then left, and Mary Magdalene was left at the tomb in verse 11. We then read in verse 11 and 12, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. Now, I want to invite all of you to picture this in your head. John tells us that Jesus had been lying there, which implies that there was a flat surface. So imagine a flat surface, and John says where Jesus' head used to be, there was now sitting an angel. And at the opposite end of that flat surface, where his feet used to be, there was another angel. And so you have a flat surface with two angels sitting on top of it. Now, if this may mean something to you, or it may not, but if John was on this podcast, he would tell us in our culture, this imagery reminded us of something holy. And the something holy that John is referencing here is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a rather big deal in Jewish theology. If you don't believe me, you can just watch Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you will come away with some appreciation for how holy it was, which, oh man, that's a good time. That's a good time. But the Ark of the Covenant was a big deal because it was this box that held the Ten Commandments, which were written by the finger of God. It also held Aaron's rod which miraculously bloomed and, according to Jewish theology, was still in bloom inside the Ark of the Covenant. And while those may seem like big deals, they paled in comparison to the fact that in their theology, they believed that God sat on top of the Ark. Yes, this Ark was the mercy seat of Yahweh. And the Ark of the Covenant was so holy 
that they built an entire temple around it and put it at the highest point of Jerusalem. And if you were walking around Jerusalem in Jesus's day and age, and you asked a Jew who was living there, can you tell me where God is? The Jew would not respond by saying, God is everywhere, man. No, the Jew would point to Temple Mount, to the temple on top of Temple Mount, and say, God is there. God lives among us. Now, the ark was in the innermost chamber of the temple, which was known as the most holy place. There was a room for God in Jerusalem. Now, upon hearing all this, you may be tempted to turn to the Jew and say, let's go see God. If God is here, let's go see God. And the Jew would say, oh, no, 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 no. If we see God, we'll die because God is holy and we are not. And there's separation and it would cause instant death. And you'd say, bummer. So God lives here, but no one can see him. And the Jew would respond by saying, well, you clearly haven't read Leviticus where all of this stuff is laid out. But there is one person who gets to go into the most holy place on one day a year, which is the Day of Atonement. And that person is the high priest, the highest ranking official in all of our religion. And upon hearing that there is only one person who gets to go into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, I believe then that John would turn to us and ask us the question, do you see what I am trying to tell you? Because when I tell the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I tell the story about one person, Mary Magdalene, walking before a stone with two angels on either side. Because Mary Magdalene is the high priest of the resurrection. My brothers, my sisters, my friends, this is a big deal. When Mary Magdalene is the high priest of the resurrection, it changes everything. And to give you an idea of how much it changes, I want to give you three main implications that we can take away, three practical applications that we can take away from this idea that Mary Magdalene is the high priest of the resurrection that John wanted us to see. The first application of this idea has to do with the Bible. Now, I grew up in church school. I grew up going to church, and I was often told about how the Bible is the inerrant and perfect word of God. And I was told that there are no contradictions because there is one author. God and God alone. And then I started to read the Bible and I found contradictions. Contradictions that are similar to the ones found in the four gospel accounts. Now, when I would bring these contradictions forward to pastors or other high school Bible teachers, I was often dismissed by telling me that the contradictions I was reading weren't actually contradictions. And from there, we would go into theological and mental gymnastics to somehow, someway prove that the Bible was still the inerrant and perfect word of God. While that may sound like a good idea, 
what we all must acknowledge is that it simply is not the tradition that these words were birthed in. Rachel Held Evans writes about this in her fantastic book, Inspired, when she says that Jewish readers make a point of highlighting the Bible's contradictions to spark discussion and debate. And rather than ignoring or resolving the contradictions, Jewish readers engage the text and engage each other to talk about what the text is really trying to get at. And now that I've been a pastor for 10 years, I will tell you the thing that I keep coming back to is that it's best not to gloss over or resolve the contradictions, but to allow the contradictions of scripture to be contradictions and to use them to start discussions. I tell you all of this because what I have found in 10 years of ministry is that biblical contradictions are where the life is. Think about the contradictions in the resurrection story. Most Christians I know would be threatened by these two really large contradictions in the resurrection account. But when you pay attention to them, you can start to ask questions like, why is it that John tells us there's only one person at the resurrection on Sunday morning? Why is it that John tells us there's two angels and they're inside the tomb rather than confirming the other gospel writer's account? Oh, he was trying to get us to see the Ark of the Covenant. And the more we pay attention to those contradictions, we can ask the author, why did you write it this way? And the Bible all of a sudden comes to life. And when we pay close attention to the contradictions, we can then understand that John was trying to tell us that Mary Magdalene is the high priest of the resurrection. My brothers and sisters, my friends, biblical contradictions are where the life is. Which brings us to the second application. And to understand the second application, we have to go through church history. Here is a story about a woman who is anointed as the high priest of the resurrection. And 600 years later, a pope says, mm, nah, I'd rather her be a prostitute than a high priest. Now from 591 on, the church told the world that Mary Magdalene was in fact a prostitute. However, the Catholic church came to its senses and decided to change that and to say that Pope Gregory was wrong but they didn't make that change until 1969. And what this really communicates to us is that the church would rather have Mary Magdalene as a prostitute than a high priest. And the reason for this is because the church is run by men. The second application of this idea is that we have to come to terms with the fact that church history is rife with misogyny. And while I don't believe that John's writings are misogynistic, I would argue that they're actually empowering of women. What we cannot deny is that the church has taken those writings and used them and chosen consistently to oppress women. And this is what happens when men are in charge. They consistently and reliably, particularly through church history, use it to oppress and belittle and mute the voices of women. And the only way that we can get better at this is to be honest about church history, 
and to recognize where we have been and to tell the world that we are sorry for all of the misogyny and that we are committed to becoming better and more interested in equality for all genders. John's story of Mary Magdalene being the high priest of the resurrection stands in sharp contrast with all of the misogyny of the patriarchy that has run the church for too long. Why are we still debating whether or not women can be ordained? There is no more debate when we trust John and see that Mary Magdalene is the high priest of the resurrection. May we acknowledge, apologize, and reform our church for the history that we have that is rife with misogyny. This brings us to the third application and the pandemic that we are all facing right now. One thing that I have heard often, and I have even said myself, is I can't wait until we all go back to normal. We all have this desire to go back to what was before the pandemic because the pandemic is rather inconvenient for the lives that we want to live. However, when we say these words, I can't wait until we go back to normal, I would encourage all of us to think about John's gospel. Because if you've been with us during this podcast, during this series through the book of John, then you know that we have looked closely at the seven miracles of Jesus. In fact, we've told you that this entire gospel is built around these seven miracles of Jesus. And whenever we hear the number seven, we have to think of Genesis chapter one and the story of God creating the earth in seven days. Not only that, but John's gospel begins with the same words as Genesis 1 when he writes, in the beginning. Now, what I have not told you is that there are not just seven miracles, but there are instead eight miracles. And the eighth miracle in John's gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb. Now, what does the number eight symbolize in Jewish theology? The number eight is resetting, and it is the beginning of something new. So here you have seven miracles of Jesus. It is a complete set, and when we get to the number eight, it is the beginning of a new set. And just as every week begins again after seven days have come to a close, so does this new creation going forward. Not only that, but when Mary can't quite recognize Jesus, John, not wanting us to miss the point, tells us that she supposed that Jesus was the gardener. In other words, John wants us to see the resurrection of Jesus as a kind of new creation. And we are all invited to participate in this new creation. Now, let me explain what this actually looks like. Let's assume that we go back and John decides to tell the story of the resurrection of Jesus in a very different way. Let's imagine that John doesn't tell us that Mary went to the tomb on Sunday morning. But instead, John says, the high priest descended from Temple Mount early on Sunday morning and went to the tomb of Jesus and was shocked to discover that it was empty. Well, if the high priest is the high priest of the resurrection, then I have to ask you, what changes? 
Nothing. Because the high priest already has religious authority. But when a woman is proclaimed to be the high priest of the resurrection, well, then everything changes, doesn't it? Because women were not allowed to serve as the high priest 2,000 years ago. Not only that, they had a specifically designated women's court and could only get so close to the outer fence of the temple. The women's court was as close as a woman could get to the actual presence of God. And when John suggests that a woman is the high priest of the resurrection, it doesn't invite us to go back to normal. It pushes us forward into a new creation. And so when we say these words in the midst of a pandemic, I can't wait until we go back to normal, understand that this is an anti-resurrection statement. Resurrection doesn't bring us back. Resurrection inspires us forward. Now, I will tell you that I used to think of resurrection as an event that happened, but I will tell you everything changed when I started to think of resurrection as an event that is happening and we are invited to participate in the new creation. To show what this means, I'd like to give you two examples. And these two examples both involve a terrible, tragic trauma and human beings' response in the wake of that trauma. Because we must always remember that the crucifixion of Jesus was a trauma and people were invited to participate or ignore the resurrection that happened after the death of Jesus. So let's begin with a story that takes place in 1906 in the city of San Francisco. It was in that year that San Francisco suffered a terrible earthquake. This earthquake was so massive that it wound up killing 3,000 people. Now, the city of San Francisco was shocked to have so much death in such a short amount of time. And after they grieved for some time, they said, we must make sure that this never happens again. And so the city of San Francisco went to structural engineers and they said, can you evaluate what happened in this earthquake? Can you figure out why buildings fell down in mass? And can we change things so we don't have to suffer this massive amount of loss again because we want something new? So structural engineers went into dilapidated buildings. They looked at why buildings failed and why they didn't fail. And they came up with new guidelines and new codes to make buildings safer. 80 years later, in 1989, another earthquake hit San Francisco of similar magnitude and only 67 people died. While some people may want to celebrate that only 67 people died, there was still grieving that happened because these were 67 people. And in the wake of that grief, San Francisco turned again to its structural engineers and said, can you learn from this? Can you make buildings even safer? And whenever structural engineers participate in this new creation, they are participating in resurrection. Now imagine if the structural engineers said, you know, I really like the old building codes. It's a lot of comfort there. They're cheaper to build buildings with the older building codes. Well, at that point, structural engineers would be fighting resurrection. They would be fighting 
new creation. And tragically, this is what happens whenever we endure yet again another mass shooting in America. Because unlike this comprehensive analysis and debrief and change in codes that happens with structural engineers, whenever a mass shooting happens in America, there are politicians who just say, I'll send my thoughts and my prayers to the victims and then refuse to change anything. Politicians work actively to return us back to what normal was before the shooting. And tragically, they have succeeded time and time again. And we still can't limit magazine sizes. We still can't expand background checks. We still can't take measures to ensure that the mentally ill aren't allowed to get assault rifles, right? And whenever we do that, we refuse to participate in the resurrection. We just are interested in getting things back to normal. And so here we are in 2020 in the midst of a massive amount of trauma. People are dying at an alarming rate. People are losing their jobs at just, it's inconceivable, right? And uh, while I have said this and I've heard other people say it, I can't wait until we go back to normal. I think we all need to look at each other and say, no, we're not going back to normal. Because what this pandemic has revealed is that we are in dire need of resurrection. We need to create something new. I think about the Washington Post and the story they ran all the way back on April 7, where they revealed that the coronavirus is infecting and killing black Americans at an alarmingly high rate. Now, this isn't because black Americans have a genetic predisposition that makes this virus more lethal in their lives. No, it's because our healthcare system takes better care of white Americans than people of color. We are in need of a resurrection. I think about all of the people who have suffered from unemployment. And I think about all the conversations that happened before this pandemic and people callously saying that people need to go back to work and they need to get a job and they need to be inspired to work harder. But now just about every household is affected in some way or shape or form by unemployment. And I hope that we can be more compassionate toward the unemployed going forward. We are in need of a resurrection. One thing that's been particularly frustrating for me is the death of expertise. It seems like everyone with a social media account is an expert on so many different things when they have no qualifications to be that expert. You know what I'm saying? And my hope is that we can leave that behind. <laughs> I hope that we can learn to trust experts in the fields that they are in and get back to more rational thinking. Because this idea that everything is a conspiracy and that everyone's an expert is something that we've got to change. We are in need of a resurrection. And the one silver lining that we keep coming back to is the fact that the planet 
is in the best shape it's been in in a long time due to our quarantining and social distancing. And the way that we've cared for the planet just a couple months ago was, it was abhorrent. It was awful, right? And I, I'm hoping that all of humanity looks at how much the planet has healed in the past month and that we use this to inspire us to live in a new creation, that we don't go back to normal because when it comes to our relationship to the planet, we are in need of a resurrection. And while this pandemic and this isolation is discouraging to all of us, I would hope that all of us can look at our own lives and the lives that we were living two months ago and ask ourselves, what is it that I need to keep and what can I let go of? Because I am being invited into a new creation and I'm not going back to normal. I want to participate in the resurrection. I can't wait to create something new. Because when we look at what this idea is, that Mary Magdalene is the high priest of the resurrection, it challenged the patriarchy in a revolutionary way. Her story invites us to see how radical the work of God is. And this new creation is something we're invited into and we can choose to ignore it and work to go back to normal or we can choose to partner with God and create something new. The story of Mary Magdalene being the high priest of the resurrection teaches us that resurrection is fundamentally rooted in new creation. And resurrection didn't just happen Resurrection is happening now. So may we have the courage and the eyes and the arms to see and embrace the resurrection that is happening and unfolding right here and right now. And may we work to create something new. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.